So good to be here with all of you and to be worshiping with you. And now getting into the word this morning. Uh, I was gone last week on vacation. Every soldier needs a furlough now and then. Had a great time with family and friends and things like that. Um, Sandra did a great job, don't you think? Uh, That was an excellent message. Uh, I have never seen that passage, be still and know that I'm God, in that light. And she just unpacked that in in a great way. If you weren't here for last week's message, I strongly encourage you to get it. Uh, it, will, it will bless you. I know she did make a snide comment about my wardrobe, how I need a wardrobe specialist uh, like the fancy churches have. And, and usually, you know, I, I'll banter with her. That's just kind of the fun we have. But in this case, she might actually be right for the first time in her life. <laughs> it's possible because, well, I got a sign from God. I, I, about, a, about an hour before I watched her online, I got a, a package in the mail. And this couldn't be a coincidence, I don't think. How could it be? And, and the package had a letter in it. It was from a family's congregation. Uh, they didn't get their last names, but it was uh, Erica, Christina, and Zachary. And uh, I met them uh, after the first service. And they uh, had a little, the little letter said, Greg, we love Woodland Hills, and we love the worship, we love preaching, blah, 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 blah. But we have one beef, and that is, if you're going to preach without shoes on, which you usually do, do you have to wear such boring socks? They're, they're always either black or white, and it's true, I said black or white. So they sent me this pair of socks. Look at that. Woo! <laughs> Do you think this is sexy? I, I, I've, it has never occurred to me once to have, you know, that socks were like uh, decorative, that you should, I, I thought socks were supposed to be boring. So now I have fancy socks. See, with socks like these, you can dance on disappointment like we just sang about. Isn't that cool? It ever gets to this point, but you gotta learn to dance on it. So I got my, my dancing socks on. All right. <laughs> so this summer we are dealing with the strangest passages in the Bible. Why not? Uh, the passages that um, teachers usually like to avoid because they're really, really hard. And, uh, you know, maybe you're wondering, why would you try to make your whole summer hard for yourself by doing a whole series on these difficult passages? And actually, that's a very good question. I'm, I'm asking that myself sometimes. But, but look, at, we like challenges. And it's good to dig into mysterious stuff. Some of the, some of the best stuff in, in the Bible is found, you know, when you have to really struggle with it and dig in deep and find a treasure underneath it. Sometimes, not always. But, um, and, and we figure if it's in the Bible, then we shouldn't be avoiding it. Right? We, we should be able to talk about it and wrestle with it. And so that's what this series is about. And today's scripture is certainly no different. The, the, today's, the passage we're going to be looking at today is really bizarre. Um, and it, it has also to do with, with this. As I'm unpacking this, um, I'm going to be kind of going to the mat with two groups of folks. There's two, two problems in this, or two, two challenges in this passage. And out of these two challenges, two different groups have emerged that you all probably know about. One are the Jehovah Witnesses, and the others are the Mormons. Uh, and they, they have a, you know, kind of aberrant, unorthodox teachings that are in part, at least, informed by this passage that we're going to be getting at. And you'll find that a lot. When, when, when there are groups that are outside the mainstream of the Orthodox Church, they often will take verses that are really obscure and that maybe most people try to avoid, but they'll build a theological edifice out of it, which is never a good idea. But uh, one of the things that you'll get out of the message this morning, if you're really paying attention is that you'll be equipped to uh, interact with these folks um, uh, on some important matters. 
and see, as, as, as people who are ambassadors of Christ, we're called to be evangelists, we shouldn't be nervous, let alone pretend that we're not at home when these folks come to our doors. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, which we do. Uh, but, but this will equip you, some real practical stuff, practical teachings that will help you uh, uh, interact with these folks. Okay, so I encourage you to be taking notes on this. Uh, the passage is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 through 29, and here's how it goes. Paul says, For Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For, and now he's going to quote a psalm, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under, under him. In other words, it doesn't include God. When all things are subjected to him, now listen to this, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. Now aside from using the word subjection too many times, uh, that's a strange passage. Then what follows is even stranger. Otherwise, what will those people do who receive baptism on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? What? <laughs> strange stuff. So there's two, the two challenges here are this. Um, First of all, what's up with this baptism for the dead? This is, this is a practice that the Mormons have. I'll say more about that later on. Pro proxy baptism on behalf of deceased relatives. Um, what's up with that? But before I address that topic, I'm going to address the other problematic aspect of this passage, which is what does Paul mean when he says that when everything gets wrapped up here, the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things under his feet, in other words, to God the Father. What does that mean? Does it entail that Jesus, the Son, is in any sense inferior to the Father? Which is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, and they'll appeal to this passage as part of their proof text. Does it imply that the Son is inferior? Because if it does imply that, well, we have some serious rethinking to do. Uh, the cornerstone of the Orthodox Christian faith throughout history has been the, the conviction that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. That he's fully God and he's fully human. That's the cornerstone. It's the most foundational teaching there is. Um, and, and so, it, 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 in fact, everything about in Christian orthodoxy and the, the kingdom life revolves around the conviction that, that when you see Jesus, you see the Father, that he is the, the embodiment of Yahweh, fully God and fully human. And so if this is mistaken, all bets are off on everything, and we've got to rethink everything. Now, I'll put all my cards at the table right at the very start here and tell you that I'm quite convinced that we're not mistaken. And so I'm going to spend the first 15, 20 minutes of this message uh, defending the doctrine of the incarnation, defending the conviction that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Um, I, I, I want to show what Paul can't be meaning by this statement about the Son being subject to the Father. What he can't mean, and then we'll look at what, what I think he does mean uh, when he gets into this. Now I'm going to warn you ahead of time, this is one of those messages, especially the first half. It's, it's, it's where, the kind of message where we get geekified. We're going to get a little geekified here. Once in a while, I get to give you geeky, all right? You let the geek out of the bag. And, and so it, it, we're going to get into, you know, some, some uh, you're going to learn a little Greek this morning. Uh, we're going to look at some passages and really, really pick on them. And I'm going to be, um, 
Well, the first part I'll be going kind of critiquing the Jehovah Witnesses. Now, if, if there are any Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses in this auditorium or on listening on podcasts, I want you to know we love you. You have unsurpassable worth, uh, and 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 we agree with God that that, that you were dying for. Absolutely. So please don't take what I'm going to say personally. I don't mean it personally. I, 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 we disagree fundamentally on some important matters, but it doesn't affect our love for you, okay? So I, I don't mean to pick on anyone, uh, but, but, you know, sometimes, sometimes you just got to say this is not that and you know, so on and so on. Okay, so get ready to think. Uh, get, your, get in touch with your inner geek. Whatever it takes to wake up those brain cells, if they're not awake, do it. Pinch yourself, slap yourself in the face, stand in your head, pop an amphetamine pill, just kidding. Uh, but whatever it takes. Because uh, if ever there's a time where it's appropriate to get geeky and it's going to be kind of intense and you're going to have to use a brain, it's, it's, what, it's when we're dealing with the question of who is Jesus. And more specifically, is Jesus, in fact, fully divine, fully God? All right? Um, I, I can only scratch the surface of this. And so we're just skimming the surface of this. Uh, if you want to go deeper on this, in fact, the first two services, I kept forgetting to mention this. So, hey, Derek, I'm going to mention the book now, okay? So I can get it in so I don't have to forget it. Uh, this book is really good, Putting Jesus in His Place by uh, Robert Bowman, who I know, and Ed, and I can't pronounce the last name, but uh, I encourage you to get that book. And if there's ever a topic where you'd want to go deeper so that you can feel excited when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door rather than nervous, uh, get that book. It's some good stuff, all right? But I'm just going to skim the surface here dealing with some of the main passages that identify Jesus as God, all right? So I'll deal with four passages that explicitly identify Jesus as God, and then a couple that confirm it in, in, in some other ways. So are you ready to get geekified? All right. Are you ready to get geekified? Today, right now, let's do it. First passage is John 1.1 1, 1 with Sharish. Uh, I had no idea she was going to read uh, John 1 uh, this morning, uh, but it totally goes into what I'm going to be teaching here. Here's what it says, as Sharish read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that's the Word that became flesh, John mentions in verse 14, so no one doubts that he's talking about Jesus there. And it looks pretty much like he's saying Jesus is God, and he has been with, with the beginning. There you have, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So you have God with God, which is the, kind of the foundation for what became the doctrine of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all fully God. Now, here's what the Jehovah Witness Bible says. They're, they have their own translation, which itself makes me nervous. And, and uh, it's called the New World Translation. And see, they don't believe Jesus is fully God. They think Jesus was uh, the highest-ranking archangel. The Son of God is an archangel. Not, not fully God and fully human. And so their New World Translation, and I cringe when I say translation, because, well, you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, it, it, it goes out of its way to try to make the text not say that Jesus is God. So here's the New World Translation of John 1.1. It says, In the beginning the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. A God. Not the God, capital G, a God. What up with that? So when I was, uh, I first became a Christian uh, at age 17, and uh, uh, right after I became a Christian, uh, two Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door. And I was really into the Bible and excited about the Bible, and they wanted to talk about the Bible, so yeah, let's, let's have a conversation. And in the course of our conversation, we came upon this passage. Uh, and I read my King James Version, which at the time I thought was the only inspired translation, and, and it, it said pretty much what we just read. The word was God. But in their, then they read their translation, the word was a God. And I said, well, how come they differ? In fact, the New World Translation differs from every other standard translation that's out there, which itself should tell you something. Do they know Greek better than everybody else? 
So I, here's how they explained it. Now, you know that there's a difference between an a uh and a the. A the is a definite article, and a uh is an indefinite. So you say the when you, want, when you, when, when you mean one specific thing. I, I, uh, could I have the cup? That would be this cup. But if you say, could I have a cup, it could be any cup, right? So they pointed out to me that in the Greek, when it says the word was with God, there's a the in front of God. The word was with the God, definite article. But then when it says the word was God, it doesn't have a the. Hmm. Which they said, that means that he was saying it was a God. So you have God with a capital G and God with a small g. Now, that would look, pretty, that would look like a pretty good argument. Uh, and I didn't know Greek at the time, and so I was stumped. I said, I'll get back to you, and I never did. Um, <laughs> but since then, I've been to grad school, and I've had four years of Greek, and I'm no expert, but I can confidently tell you that that's not a very good argument. And here's why. Uh, the Greek of the New Testament is written in what's called Koine Greek, which means common Greek. It's a, it's a street people Greek. It's not classical, highbrow Greek. It's, it's a, the people's Greek. And in Koine Greek, you don't need to have a definite article in front of something to make it definite if everybody knows you're talking about it. If everybody knows you're talking about the singular thing, you don't need to say the before it. So like, if I'm talking Koine, and I did warn you this is going to get a little geeky, so don't, don't, don't zone out of me here. Uh, that, that in Koine Greek, I could, I could refer to the, the capital of Minnesota, or I could refer to capital of Minnesota, but I could do either one. Because everybody knows that there's only one capital. Or I could refer to the president or president, but I don't have to have a the for you to know that I'm talking about the president, right? So also with God, thank you very much, uh, with God, everybody knows in Jewish culture that there's one God, and so you don't need to have a the in front of God to be referring to God. In fact, there's 1,236 references to God in the New Testament. New Testament. I looked it up this week. And over half of them lack a definite article in front of God. Over half of them. And yet, this is the only place where the New World Translation capitalizes on that fact to translate it as a God. Only place. In fact, five verses after John 1.1, you read this. It says that there's a man sent from God. His name was John. Guess what? There's no the in front of God there. But guess what? The New World Translation translates that God with a capital G. In fact, there's three other references to God in John 1. And in none of them do you find a definite article. But in all of them, the New World Translation translates it God with a capital G. The only time it doesn't translate it God with a capital G is in John 1.1. 1, 1. Why? Because that passage identifies Jesus as God. And they don't believe that. So they have to make it into a God. This is why I love you, Jehovah Witnesses. But your translation drives me nuts. All right. Second one, uh, John 20, 28. Here's Thomas, and, and, and Thomas has heard that Jesus rose from the dead, but he doesn't believe it. So then Jesus shows up in front of him, and Thomas says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Now, it looks very much like Jesus, and Thomas is here calling Jesus Lord and God, as Christians have believed throughout history. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses, if you ask them about this passage, they'll say that Thomas looked up to heaven and said, my Lord and my God. Referring to Jehovah up there. But the passage doesn't say that Thomas looked up to heaven when he said this. He's talking to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And in fact, in the next passage, look at this, uh, verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. In other words, Jesus identifies 
Thomas's confession as a confession of faith. Oh, that's what it means to believe in me. You call me Lord and you call me God. So folks, Jesus is Lord and God. Third passage is Romans 9, 5. To them, referring to the Jews, belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Does it not look like here Paul identifies the Messiah as God over all blessed forever. Amen. So it looks like that. Now, in the New World Translation, they avoid that implication by putting a period after Messiah. And in the original, there's no punctuation, so, so you're allowed to do that. You've got to put the period somewhere. They put the period after Messiah, and then they let, that last clause stands alone as a sentence. God, uh, who is overall blessed forever, amen. Now, that is grammatically possible. I can't say it's impossible. But it's very, very awkward and not a, just a little bit weird. Uh, when Paul says things like, God be blessed forever, amen, that's called the doxology. He just erupts into praise. And he does it several times in his epistles. But whenever Paul breaks into praise, he builds up to it. He, like, he, like he gets himself excited, and then it's like, God overall bless it forever, amen. That's how he usually does it. He never does it like this. This pops out of nowhere. He's talking about the lineage of the Jews, and, and he breaks his train of thought. He's not building up or anything. Out of nowhere, he just says, God bless it forever, amen. It's like he burps or something. Like he's got spiritual Tourette syndrome. God bless it forever. God bless. Like I, I interrupt what I'm saying by him. God bless it forever, amen. It, it's just as weird, and, and it's just it's much more natural reading to say that Paul here is like he's talking about the Messiah, and he identifies the Messiah as the one who's God overall, blessed forever, amen. Jesus is God. Finally, the fourth passage I want to look at is is fourth passage that's explicitly about Jesus being God. Not at all by means the final passage we're going to deal with today because we're going to get a lot more scripture, but hang in there. So uh, here's what it says in Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Paul says, The grace of God trains us to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. I'm still working on the self-controlled part. While we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It certainly looks there like Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. Would you agree? Now, here's how, now pay attention to this. It's subtle, but profound, and, and, and not profound in a good way. Uh, here, here's the New World Translation. It says, while we wait for the happy and glorious manifestation of our glorious God and of the Savior of us, Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? Viva la difference. Do you see the difference there? They insert the word of the, of the. The of the is not in the Greek. There's no definite article there. But this makes a huge difference. You might think, well, of the, you know, so what? They think it's applied. Well, this changes everything. See, here's the thing, and now you're going to learn some Greek grammar. Um, there's a rule, a grammatical rule in Greek. It's called Sharp's rule, Granville Sharp's rule. He's the one who first formulated this. And the rule basically says this. When you have the God and the Savior, if, if, if you repeat the definite article, if you repeat the the, both before God and, and Savior, well, then you're most, most likely talking about two subjects. Almost all the time it refers to two subjects because there's another the. But when you don't have another the, when you have the, and now you have God and Savior, God and Savior refer to one definite noun. In this case, Jesus Christ. The governs both nouns that follow. And they're only separated by an and. So that's, that, that's Granville's rule. When you have two nouns that are governed by one definite article, separated only by a chi, which is an and, then the two nouns refer to one of the same subject, Jesus Christ. 
So, folks, here, here Paul is calling Jesus our great God and Savior because that is who he is. And Jehovah Witnesses, I love you, but please, seriously, reconsider reading a different Bible. Uh, uh, yours is just jacked up. All right. With all, with all due respect. Okay, then there's... there's it's not bad. It's not always bad, but when it comes to deity of Christ, it's terrible. It's terrible, 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 terrible. Okay, then there's a ton of passages that, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens, as you'll see if you read that, that book I referred to, uh, dozens that confirm the deity of Jesus uh, indirectly, in indirect ways. I'm just going to give two examples of these. First, here's a passage I quote all the time, because I think it just sums up the, the kingdom life. Paul says, be imitators of God. He uses the Greek word mimetai. We get the word mimic from it. It means do exactly what you see another doing. Be imitators of God. Now you might ask the question, how am I supposed to imitate God? God's invisible. God's a spirit. Ah, au contraire. God has become a human being. So Paul then fleshes out what he means when he says, be imitators of God. Here's what it looks like. Live in love as Jesus Christ loved us and gave his life for us. To imitate God, you imitate Jesus. To imitate Jesus, you imitate God. Jesus is God incarnate. Got it? All right. Here's another one. In, in the Old Testament, Yahweh identifies himself as the beginning and the end. He's referring to he's, he, he's eternal in both directions. All right? On the beginning and the end. Here's what he says in Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. So lock this in. The one who says, I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning and I am the end. Uh, is the one who says, beside me there is no God. We're talking about God here, right? Capital G. Amazingly enough, Jesus re applies this to himself several times. Uh, look at this. In Revelation chapter 1, uh, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega, by the way. Alpha is the first word of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. So it's a way of saying I'm the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, as we sang about a little bit ago. Okay, so this is Jesus talking about Jehovah's Witnesses. When you invite them in your door, because next time they come to your house, you're going to, right? Or you might want to say, hey, wait, i got to check my notes for a little bit and then, then come back. And by the way, when, when you do this, here, here's what I've learned, because I've talked with a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, make, make this deal with them. I'll let you talk 20 minutes and I won't interrupt you. Then you let me talk 20 minutes and, I, and you don't interrupt me. And then if we want to talk some more, we can. But they know how to control conversations. They, they get trained on that. And so, um, uh, and they'll try to interrupt you as you're talking. They'll, they'll, and you go, no, no, zip, zip, zip. I didn't interrupt you, so you don't interrupt me. And so you have 20 minutes to share your conviction, and I would share this material right here if I were you. Where was I? Oh, yeah, Alpha and Omega. So they say that this isn't Jesus talking here. Unfortunately for their position, read the previous sentence. The previous sentence, uh, the previous verse says, look. He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. Now, throughout the New Testament, the one who comes on the clouds is Jesus Christ. And by the way, the clouds there aren't literal. Clouds were a common apocalyptic imagery for majesty. He comes in majesty and glory. If it was coming on a literal cloud, not every eye could see him. I mean, it just wouldn't work. And plus, it's kind of bizarre to imagine Jesus surfing the clouds. I'm coming for you! No. So it, 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 it's metaphorical. But even more importantly, Jesus is the one, Jesus is the one who was pierced uh, on the cross. So this is Jesus talking here. But in case there's any doubt, 10 verses later we read this. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, 
and the living one. I was dead and see, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Who else could be talking here other than Jesus? The one who was dead but is now alive forevermore, amen? This is Jesus talking here. He's the first and the last, and so he is the Lord God. And in case there's any remaining doubt, he closes the book by saying the same thing. He says in, verse, in chapter 22, See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's worth. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Hallelujah, hallelujah. That's who Jesus is, the so folks. Jesus, I see there's a ton of other stuff like, like, like Jesus called the bridegroom, but Yahweh's called the bridegroom in the Old Testament. There's only one bridegroom, and Jesus is called the creator, but everyone knows there's only one creator. And, and, and Jesus is, is, is called uh, the good shepherd, but Yahweh's called the good shepherd. And, and uh, he, he's the beginning and the end, uh, but only Yahweh's the beginning and the end. And people pray to Jesus, but everyone knows you only pray to God. And people worship Jesus, but everyone knows you only worship God. So folks, Jesus isn't some archangel or some great prophet or some lesser anything. He's the Lord God Almighty, King of all kings, the God of all gods, amen? Like we sing about earlier, he's got no rival, he's got no competitor, he's above all. He's got the name that's above every name, Emmanuel, God with us. It says it right there. Name above every name. Uh, so to him we give all praise and all honor and all glory. Because he's deserving of that. He's the creator of all. Hallelujah. And the savior of all. Hallelujah. And the lover of all. Now this is the best news in the world once you understand it. Best news. Because it means that when God set out to save the world, he didn't send some archangel. Hey, uh, Jesus, archangel, go down there and get those guys. Those poor human beings, I love them so much. Go do something about it. No, no, when, when God comes to sets out to save the world, God himself comes. And see, that changes everything. It changes everything. It's like, what do you think if I'm, I, I'm, I'm, what is your name? Brent. Brent? Brent. Brent. Okay, so Brent and I are walking down the road, chilling, having fun, and we see a house on fire. And, and we hear people screaming on the inside. And I say to Brent, oh, you know, I, I just love those people, and they're trapped in there. I, 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 wanna, I, I want them to be saved. So, Brent, go in there and, and save them and give your life if you have to. What would you think of me? <laughs> Boy, that Greg's a stand-up guy. Brent, what would you think about me? <laughs> what a jerk. No, yeah, that's, that's, but if, if, if I and Brent are walking along, and we see a house on fire, hear some people screaming on the inside, and I hold Brent back, and I say, I'll take care of it. And I run in there, and I give my life to save these people. Well, now you say, well, Greg is a loving guy and a great guy and a good friend. The world the difference between the God who sends a third party or the God who himself comes down for us. And according to the New Testament, it was God himself who robed himself in flesh, praise God, took on our humanity and died a God-forsaken death on the cross. And see, in doing that, he shows us who he is. He, that, that, that love, the love that he expresses, that's the love who he is and the love that he has for us. And it's unsurpassable and it's perfect. And it is the most unbelievable, beautiful, life-transforming message in the Bible. That God himself was willing to do this for us. Didn't send a third party. This is why Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. As we say all the time around here. You couldn't say that if he's an angel. No. If he's an angel, he, re he reveals an angel. Uh, but if he's God, he reveals God. And he is the very face of God. Which is why all of our thinking about God has got to be anchored in Jesus Christ. And especially in Jesus Christ crucified. Amen. All of our thinking. Keep your eyes fixed on him. This is what God really is like. Hallelujah. So, what do we do with that verse? Let's look at it again. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Paul says, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be... Man, we need to turn up the air conditioning. Are you guys sweating? It's crazy. It's the anointing. Hallelujah. Glory. 
I'm feeling anointed right now. <laughs> when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in. Too many subjections in one sentence. Sorry, Paul. Uh, it's, it's all, then, sorry from the game. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. What does that mean? Now, in light of what we just covered, it can't mean that the Son's inferior. It go against everything the New Testament says about it. So what does it mean? Here's how the early church, uh, in fact, the church throughout history, how most theologians have explained this. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. And, and uh, it's, 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 uh, it's the, he's fully God and fully human. Now, as fully God, he's absolutely equal to the Father. In fact, Paul says that explicitly in Philippians 2, 6. He didn't grasp after his equality with God. Um, he, he's, he's equal. But as a human being, he's inferior because human beings are inferior. And he is really a full human being. And don't ask me right now to try to unpack the mystery of the incarnation, how Jesus could be fully God and fully human, but it's possible, so another sermon. So, um, uh, and this is why Jesus says things like in John 14, he says, the Father's greater than I am, and this is why Jesus has to pray to the Father, and why Jesus has to submit to the Father, because he's a perfect human being, and a perfect human being prays and submits and obeys the Father, right? Uh, now, it's as, as Son, as this, this God, this is what's usually referred to as the Son of God. When the Bible talks about the Son of God, it's not saying Son as opposed to God. It's, it's, it's rather Son as God as human. The Son is God existing in, in, in a human form. And as, as a human, Jesus is, plays this role of coming to save us and to defeat the powers of darkness. He's a Savior and a conqueror. Now, when that job is done, when all who can be saved are saved and all that need to be conquered are conquered, so there's no longer any opposition to God, God will be all in all. And, and now that, that that role is done, son playing that role, son identified as that role, can be subjected to the Father. Uh, everything will be subjected to the Father. But as God, Jesus is still fully one with God the Father. And so then when all that is done, when all opposition is removed, when all who can be saved and freed are saved and freed and all powers are put in submission, then God's love, the love of the triune God, Father, Son, and the Spirit, will define every square inch of the cosmos. Hallelujah. And then everybody who is surrendered to the Son, when the Son was playing the role of conqueror and deliverer and savior, uh, will participate in the love of the triune God that defines every square inch of the cosmos, and it will be beautiful, and I, for one, can't wait. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. All right. So that's the first problem with this passage. Now let's turn to the second problem. And now it's time to beat up on the Mormons. Just kidding, Mormons. We love you guys. Uh, it's just, I'm going to beat up on this belief, all right? So make a distinction. Belief, people, different things. All right. Let's read that passage again. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Otherwise, what will those people do who receive baptism on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? What is Paul getting at here? What's up? See, on, this, on the basis of this one verse, Mormons have this practice of what's called proxy baptism. Now, the reason is this. Uh, Mormons believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. No, salva no baptism, no salvation. And by baptism, they mean bapt baptism into the Mormon church, not your baptism. And no other baptism count except for the baptism in the Mormon church. So if they're right, we're all toast. But they're not right, so don't worry about it. <laughs> and so, um... So the, 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 salvation requires baptism. So then people wonder, well, what about my wonderful grandmother who never got baptized as a Mormon and, and, and my great-great-grandmother and, and so on. And so they hit on this one verse uh, to build this doctrine out of it. So when someone converts to Mormonism, the Mormon church does this exhaustive genealogical research on their family tree. 
I'm told that, that the Mormon church down, down in Utah, uh, Salt Lake City, they have got the best genealogical records on the planet. Um, and then what happens, they have the genealogical tree, and then they have people who will now be baptized for every one of your forefathers going back four generations and sometimes longer. They're all baptized. And that opens up the door, the possibility that those people will be saved. Otherwise, they, they'd be lost. I, I actually had a Mormon missionary tell me that, that um, uh, there are people whose whole ministry, eight hours a day, is being baptized on behalf of the dead. They have the, 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 a new convert comes in, they have a genealogical tree, and this person is done for Aunt Harry and Uncle Joe and, and, and Betty and every, going back four generations. These people are the cleanest people on the planet. But uh, yeah, so th that, that's, that's how they do that. Now, is that a sound practice? I'm sure you'd be shocked to hear that I don't think it is. The answer to that, I think, is no. For three reasons, right? Number one, it's never, ever, ever a good idea to base a doctrine on a single passage. Uh, if, if there's something important for us to believe, and God wants us to believe it, it's going to be confirmed all over the place, like the deity of Jesus is, right? Uh, to take one verse, and there's nothing else in the whole Bible that's like this. This is a strange, strange passage. But to build a, a, a doctrine out of this is just wrong-headed. Uh, never trust that. Never trust that. Secondly, it's always important when you're considering any belief system or any practice to ask the question, what picture of God is presupposed in this belief or practice? And if any belief or practice presupposes a picture of God that's inconsistent with what is revealed in Jesus Christ, especially in Jesus Christ crucified, that alone is enough to tell you that something is off. Now, maybe you don't know it's off yet, but it is off. Because God's consistent, right? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I submit to you that the idea that we're saved through baptism, that baptism is necessary for salvation, and that people can be baptized on behalf of other people, I submit to you that that presupposes a view of God that is not at all consistent with the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, just imagine this. You know, here's Jesus on the cross. And there's that repentant thief. And the repentant thief says, Jesus, I don't know much about anything, but, 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 but will you take me with you? And let's try to imagine Jesus hanging on the cross, turns to the guy and says, well, dude, uh, I love you. In fact, I'm, I'm dying right now for you. Uh, but there is this technicality. Um, you, you weren't baptized as a Mormon. And so sorry, you're toast. Oh, but there, there's a little bit of hope. Maybe one of your, your, your descendants are going to get baptized on your behalf. So hang in there. Uh, <laughs> I, I honestly didn't intend that. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I mean, <laughs> hang in there. Uh, you're killing me. I <laughs> know. Oh my gosh. No, you guys. God isn't a God of technicalities. A technicality can never thwart the love of God. God loves people, not technicalities. Amen? And, and, and so that's why Jesus can say, yeah, today you'll be with me in paradise. Baptism or no baptism, you're in. You know, your heart's in the right place. God looks at the heart. It's the only thing that really matters in the end. And so this, this, pitch, this idea that you can baptize on behalf of other people and, and the baptism necessary for salvation is just, is just caca, uh, with all due respect. Third thing is this. Everything the New Testament talks about baptism runs against this idea that, that, that you can be baptized on behalf of somebody else. It, it, it all goes against it. That, that, bapti that dead people can benefit from being, your ancestors being, or your descendants being baptized. In, in the New Testament, what makes baptism important is not that it saves you. It's that it's the, it's the ceremony. Whenever God initiates a covenant, there's a ceremony around it, and that's an important thing. And so baptism is the ceremony by which you join the bride of Christ and therefore become betrothed to, to Christ. Get married to Jesus. It's your wedding ceremony, all right? And it's important for the same reason weddings are important. 
It doesn't save you or determine whether you're saved or not, but it's important. But, uh, and the way that we do that is by publicly identifying with Jesus' death when you go down into the water, and then publicly identifying with his resurrected life when you come up out of the water, and you're committing to now live in the ways of Jesus. That's why it's important. It is the first act of discipleship uh, in, in the New Testament. Whenever people get saved, first thing that they're told to do is, okay, now, now you need to be baptized. If your heart wants to be married to Jesus, let's have the ceremony. So we read this in Matthew 28. Uh, Jesus, in fact, is his last word, so it's important. Go, therefore, he tells his disciples, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. So look at this. Our job is to make disciples, and the way that you make disciples is first by baptizing them, okay? betrothing them to Jesus, and then teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. Uh, the, the ones that we're supposed to be baptizing are the disciples that we just made. And the ones that, 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 that we're baptizing are the ones who are capable of obeying everything Jesus commanded. Last I checked, last I checked, dead people can't do that. So it doesn't apply to them. The, the idea of a proxy baptism is, is, is something of an oxymoron. It's, it's like, you can, it's, you can no more have a proxy baptism than you can have a proxy salvation or a proxy faith or, 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 or proxy discipleship or proxy sanctification or proxy anything. Some things you just got to do on your own. And this idea of proxy baptism, it, it's, again, it presupposes a picture of God that's just not consistent with what we find in Jesus Christ. It, so imagine this. Uh, suppose I have a great, 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 great grandfather going back four generations. His name is Joe Boyd. And yeah, really original. Joe Boyd. And Joe Boyd was, he didn't care about God, didn't care about anything sacred or even decent. Joe Boyd was a racist, pig, mean abuser of his wife and children all his life till the day he drank himself to death. He was a drunk on top of everything else. But, so uh, judgment day comes. And Joe Boyd appears before uh, the Lord, and, 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 and he, uh, the Lord says, well, Joe, you know, you, you were kind of a, a schmuck. You, you, were a, you, you didn't care about God or anything holy or even anything decent, and you were drunk your whole life. You're mean, racist, and abuser of your wife and children. I should send you to hell. But you know what? Fortunately for you, you had a descendant four, four generations later, Greg. And, and on, on behalf of you, he, 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 he treated his wife and his kids good, and, and he believed in me, and he lived for me, and he was a disciple. And, and so, you know what? We're cool. You, you come on in the kingdom, man. No problem. What's wrong with this picture? It, it doesn't work like that, does it? Some things can't be transferred. Some things can't be transferred. And you find it throughout the whole Bible. Like Ezekiel 6, chapter 16 and chapter 32, it emphasizes that people are rewarded or judged based on what they alone choose. No one's punished for somebody else. No one's rewarded for somebody else. No, it's, it's you as an individual. What you choose, how you live your life, that is, that, that's what, what, what you go to the Lord with. You can't ride on someone else's coattails into heaven. Amen? Some things you just got to do on your own, and this is your choice. This is your choice. So the idea of proxy baptism is, is, is jacked up all over the place. The people to be baptized are the ones who can make a response, who are living and can make a responsible choice to be betrothed to Jesus, to obey the teachings of Jesus. Once people who, are, who can understand what they're doing. I should say that, that this, is, this is also why we don't baptize infants here at Woodland Hills Church. Um, Okay, because they are incapable of being disciples. They're incapable of understanding and obeying the teachings of Jesus. Now, some folks, um, when they hear this, they can bristle a little bit. Because you were baptized as an infant, and it might be very meaningful to you, very meaningful to your parents. And, and it, it might seem to you like you're dissing your parents uh, if you are baptized as an adult. But I'd like to give you a little reframe on that. I've shared this before. 
but it's a good one. You know, in traditional cultures, which is most cultures throughout history, marriages were arranged. Uh, you know, they, they made a deal. Families made a deal together that the couple would be betrothed, and usually there's land or cattle or goats involved in it. Um, so it was arranged, and that's fine. It would make dating a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? In fact, you wouldn't have any dating. Come to think of it, I'd rather have dating. But uh, <laughs> you don't know who you're going to get assigned. So, 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 but here's the thing. Even in those traditional cultures, man, I wish they turned up the air conditioning here. Even in those traditional cultures, makes my ADD go on steroids. Even in those traditional cultures, like I was saying, if you'd stop interrupting me, all right? <laughs> I'm trying to make a point here. I get paid to make a point, so let me make a point. Where was it? Okay, even in the traditional cultures, there comes a point where the, the, the kids have got to own for themselves. And it's usually around the age of, of, of 12, 11 to 13 is when traditionally people got married, which would have really solved a lot of problems, wouldn't it? But man, I got to get off quick and sidetrack. Um, imagine, yeah, forget it. So, so, so the, the, there's a time where they have to own for themselves what their parents pledged for them. And that's when they have the wedding, and that's when they officially become married. So also, I consider this. You're not dishonoring your parents' intention when they baptize you as a baby. Uh, in fact, if you're baptized as an adult, you're actually fulfilling what they pledged you for. You're owning it for yourself. You're not trying to ride into heaven on your, on your parents' coattails. Not that baptism saves you. But, but you're, you're, you're saying, yes, what you wanted for me, I will now accept for myself. And so we encourage everybody who hasn't been baptized as an adult uh, to seriously consider, prayerfully consider uh, doing so. Uh, it's, it, it's an important thing. So, so then what is up with this baptism for the dead deal? What, is, what does Paul mean by that? Well, here's the thing. It's so important. Whenever you're dealing with a passage, especially a mysterious passage, but really any passage, it's so important that you zoom out and look at the broader context. What is the topic under discussion? In this case, the topic under discussion is mentioned in verse 12. So Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Apparently, some of the Corinthians believe that they were already resurrected. I know that sounds really funky, but that's what they believe. It seems that when they identified with Jesus' death and resurrection and baptism, they took that so literally that they thought they were literally already resurrected so that they would never die. And that sounds weird to us, but remember, we're talking about the first generation of Christians, and most of them didn't think they'd die before the Lord returned. So they thought, no, the resurrection's already happened. So that's what Paul is going after. That's a serious theological error, and that's what he's concerned with. And he makes a whole argument throughout 1 Corinthians 15 about why they should believe in the resurrection of the dead, the future resurrection. But this is like his final argument, all right? This is like, if, if nothing else has worked, try this. Try this one. Think about this. If you don't believe in the future resurrection, then why are you baptizing for the dead? Apparently the Corinthians, and there's a debate about where they got this from, apparently it's from, from mystery religion or whatever, it's a piece of paganism, but it came into the church that where they were baptizing people as proxy for deceased relatives. So what Paul's doing here is he's trying to expose this contradiction. How can you guys baptize for the dead when you don't even believe there's a future resurrection? Because obviously it's not going to benefit the, the, the dead unless there is a future resurrection. But he's not condoning at all the, their, their practice. He's not going after it right now because there are, there are more important or bigger fish to fry or whatever the expression goes. The more important error here is that they don't believe in the future resurrection. And if you don't believe in the future resurrection, who gives a rip how you baptize or what you baptize? You know, you're off by a million miles. So he's going. He's using this as an occasion to, to show the inconsistency of their own system. And he's saying, even on your own goofy baptism practices, on the basis of that, you should agree with me that there is going to be a future resurrection of the dead. It's a little bit like this. 
A couple of years ago, no, a number of years ago, by 20 years ago, actually. Who knows? Uh, but uh, I was at this theological conference, and I had three angry Calvinists accost me. Um, Calvinists believe that everything, everything, everything is predestined. And these guys were coming at me because I don't believe that at all. And, and you know, they were, they were really angry and, and like, how can you deny the sovereignty of God? And I was saying, I don't deny the sovereignty of God. I just deny the, the meticulous control freak sovereignty of God. Uh, I don't think that is power. And so we were going on, but they wouldn't let me have a word in Adraise. It was three against one, no fair. And so finally I got frustrated. I said this, okay, listen, if everything's predestined or since everything's predestined, Obviously, what I believe is wrong. It is. It was predestined. So why the heck are you trying to change me? <laughs> I can't help it. Blame God. You know, t- take your beef up with God. You know, he, well, he's the one who did it. And what I'm doing there, it's not that I'm condoning their belief in predestination at all, but I'm just showing, since you believe this, then you shouldn't be ragging on me for not believing that. Because if you believe what you believe about predestination, then I can't help what I believe. And it kind of did silence them for about four seconds. Then I politely excuse myself. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, look at you guys, on your own goofy practice of baptizing for the dead, uh, it won't benefit the dead unless there is a resurrection, so you ought to agree with me. If for no other reason than the fact that your own goofy baptism practice presupposes it. <sighs> Turn up the air conditioning. All right, it's too late now. So folks, baptism doesn't save you, and proxy baptism is illegitimate. So when we have a baptism on July 29th, please, nobody come up and ask me to baptize someone for a deceased relative. I ain't going to do it. I love you. I ain't going to do it. Uh, it's, it. But it is important here. And see, some people think that, well, if it's not necessary for salvation, it's sort of optional. That's kind of an American thing. You know, like, it's like, unless there's some pressure on me to do it, I'm not going to do it. We're always going for the easier deal. It's, we treat it as a kind of a negotiable thing. But in the New Testament, it's not negotiable. It really isn't. Uh, It's commanded. It's a command. Read Acts 10. When Peter's preaching to the household of Cornelius, the Spirit of God comes down on them, and Peter says, whoa, I guess the Gentiles are included, even though Jesus taught that in Matthew 28, 19, and a bunch of other places. But Peter was kind of thick. And so uh, it's about 10 years later where he finally realizes that God wants to include the Gentiles. So then, first thing he does is he commands them. He doesn't say, hey, here's an idea, a general request. Would you give baptism? He commands them to be baptized. So this is a command. And so take it seriously. If you haven't been baptized as an adult, I want to really encourage you to prayerfully consider that. And sign up for these classes. It doesn't mean that you're committing to be baptized, but you're committing to learn about what, why, why you should be. And you can disagree with us if you want. Uh, we're fine. But, but uh, uh, at least you'll do it in, with an informed kind of uh, state of mind. So you can sign up for that at the help desk. And if you can't make all three classes, then they'll be at 9 a.m. for the next uh, three uh, Sundays. If you can't make all three, we can work around that uh, and make it happen. But uh, sign up for that, all right? Would you stand? And I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward here at the front of the auditorium. And if you're here this morning and have any need, any need, whatever, that could use prayer, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. And if you're here this morning and you're not a surrendered follower of Jesus... um, I would encourage you to consider that. And if you want to find out what's involved in that, uh, and here's a little tip, it will involve baptism. But if you want to find out what it means to walk with Jesus, come up here and talk to these folks, and they'd love to explain that to you. I want to end with this prayer. Father, um, I, I thank you, Lord, for being the kind of God who didn't send a third party, but you yourself, showing your magnificent, unfathomable, beautiful, life-transforming, radiant love. 
You yourself dove into our mess. You yourself dove into our sin. You yourself dove into our hell to set us free. You dove into the, the fire that we had started on this planet. We were burning. But you came and you absorbed that fire in yourself, allowing yourself to be burned alive so the flames would not touch us. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for being the God that you are. And as we leave this place, Lord, uh, uh, help us to always be keeping our eyes on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the Lord God Almighty, the Word of God, Lamb of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We give him all of our adoration. And as we leave here, Lord, let your love flow into us and flow through us to everyone we come in contact with in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. God bless you guys. See you next week.